Heroes of Faith, we are continuing our theme, and every time that I am able to share, Lord willing, I would like to focus in on the life of one particular person, the life of David. It was early in my uh, life with God that I discovered him in the Older Testament and became captured by uh, the legendary way in which he was able to live out his days, the way God was interacting in his life. And so I'm hoping that we'll be able to see segments of his life each time I get to share. And um, this, this weekend, what we're going to look at is somewhat of a contrast between two people, David and the sitting king of Israel, Saul. And what we're going to see is, I, I believe, a study of contrast in the sense that some have said the sun rises on one life while it sets on the other. In one case, we're going to see somebody who's going to step into an increasing awareness of God's grace and knowledge of that. And then the other, we're going to see somebody who is actually quite resistant to God. And in a certain way, he ends up moving into degrees of frustration and darkness that ends up enveloping the rest of his days. The rise and decline. That's what we're going to see. And David... David actually stepped onto the scene as an unlikely candidate. He was who Samuel, God's spokesman, chose because God chose David to be the next king of Israel because Saul was no longer fit to be king. And after this ceremony happened, after somewhat of a a secretive nature happened and he was chosen, this unlikely candidate was chosen as the next king of Israel, the men of uh, Saul's military, who included several of David's brothers, went off to war and to a battle. And David's father ends up sending him out to send him provisions, send his brothers provisions. And it's when he makes his way out there that he notices that Israel's army is on one side of a valley and the Philistine army is on the other side. And in the middle of the valley, in ancient practice, the champion of the Philistines is sitting there mocking the Israelites. He's a giant of a man known as Goliath. And we know the story. We don't even have to know the story to know the story. We understand what it means when we say David versus Goliath. David ends up slaying the giant. And what happens is that the giant Goliath ends up falling and he ends up shaking more than the ground beneath him. See, that event ends up moving David into national awareness. Everyone took note of this boy named David. This adolescent, including Saul. And Saul ends up conscripting him into his military, which means he didn't let him go home. He assigned him. He drafted him. He says, now you will serve with me. You are now mine. And you will serve in my course. You will serve in the military. And that ends up changing, altering the entire course of David's life. It's there that we pick up. And if we open up our handout, we'll go ahead and read together in 1 Samuel 18. We see in verse 5 that we're told that whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. And when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. And they sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. It appears that after Saul 
realized what he had in David. He not only conscripted him, drafted him in, but he gave him certain assignments. And these assignments, we're told, were assignments that David succeeded in. And so recognizing that David had a skill that was untapped, he ends up putting him in charge of other officers, of other men in his military. And that in itself indicates to us that he, was on, he had no previous experience in war. And yet Saul recognized his skill, his potential, elevates him. He's on the fast track. It just makes David unique. It's just that, that in itself is unique. But that's actually not what we should pay attention to. What is the... What the author may want us to recognize is the reaction of everyone else. Because what we see here is that we're told that the appointment was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. And this is, this is, this is why this is so rare, because there is unanimous agreement over the fact that this rookie is being elevated to a point of leadership. And if we could hear this, veteran officers agreed with this assessment. To earn the respect of a tried and true, experienced military veteran is no small feat. And to earn the unanimous agreement of everyone, no dissension whatsoever, that is just something rare. It's unheard of, but it happened. That's what we're being told. And what happens is there was an ancient Near East tradition where a military would go to the battlefront and if they were victorious, runners would be sent to the surrounding towns as the king and his military or the general and his army would get back to where they called home. And the runners would go and they would tell the surrounding towns, Saul won. Saul and his army was victorious. He, they overcame the Philistines. They overcame the, yes, they overcame the Philistines. That's great. And every town would celebrate, not because it was only Saul's victory, but it was theirs as well. It meant security. It meant freedom. It meant a sense of peace over their land. This was phenomenal. And they start gathering together. Everybody starts celebrating. And this is, this is what this scene would look like. They start gathering with cymbals and dancing and tambourines and making songs. And they start dancing. And what we sense is that you could see it. It would almost be like Saul and his men are, are creating a processional from the battlefront through the towns all the way to where he would call home, his hometown, his capital. And as he's doing this, the women would line the streets and they would sing the song in original. And say, on one side, it would be a call and response song. One side, Saul has killed his thousands. And on the other, David his ten thousands. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his ten thousands. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his ten thousands. And if at first, Saul felt affirmed by what he witnessed out in front, the closer he got, the more he understood the lyrics that were being sung and the implications sat within him. They did not please him. Actually, they did quite the opposite. We read in verse 8 that this made Saul very angry. It was severe. What's this? He said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. 
from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The commentators would say that it is here that we start to see the evidence of a soul in decline. And it didn't start here. It certainly didn't start here. It actually began uh, previous moments before, several chapters in this book before we're told of an account in which Samuel, God's spokesman, ends up going into Saul's life and confronting him with love, asking him to not take God's commands so casually. God had given him specific commandments to obey, specific assignments to complete. Saul didn't do it. He treated it casually. He didn't think it was that big of a deal. To him, the details didn't really matter. And Samuel comes to him and he says, no, 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 no. Saul, Saul, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't belittle what God is asking you to do. Don't do that. And Saul, almost as if to say, Samuel, have you forgotten? I'm the king. Not you. I decide. Not you. It's not that big of a deal. Look, we won. Yeah, I didn't do exactly what God wanted. But look, we won. And look, the sky's not falling. Everything's not ending. It's not that you're overreacting. Stop it. Stop, Samuel. Stop. Let's just go. Come on. Let's go and celebrate. Everyone's, everyone's enjoying themselves. Why don't you just join us? Stop being a downer on this. It's not that big of a deal. Calm down. Samuel actually ends up into that moment and says, Saul, Saul, you're not hearing me. Number one, it doesn't matter what you give God, which is what you're trying to do. It doesn't matter what you give him. God actually values obedience above sacrifice. Secondly, because you're not hearing me, because you're not responding well to this correction, I'm going to tell you this. God will take your kingdom away from you. And he's going to, he's going to replace you with a man who is known as a man after God's own heart. This is serious, Saul. But you're not hearing me, and I want you to know this is what's going to happen. Saul hears it, and we're told he shrugs it off. Sad. Honestly, come on. Whatever. Let's go. Can we just go eat? It's not that big. Okay, okay. You're blowing it out of proportion. And they go. And we know that Saul, actually, though he treated those words lightly, they didn't, they didn't, uh, he didn't dismiss them. They actually penetrated. And they, they, they planted within him. And though he pretended as if it didn't bother him, it actually bothered him greatly. And this is where it shows up. Why? Because at the moment, there was no evidence to what Samuel was saying. There was zero evidence. Everything was good. He was at the apex of his, of his kingdom. He was the most popular, the most successful, the most courageous. He was winning. Everything he did was succeeding. And so in that moment, those words sounded like foolishness. But now, Time later, a season had changed, something had turned, and now the words being sung about these women, about David, giving, gave, giving this nobody, nobody knew the credit only a king deserved. Well, it bothered him. It bothered him. It bothered him, and it sat within him, and he started to feel threatened, and he started to see je- jealousy all through the lens of how he saw David. And if we can hear this, at, up until this point, David had done nothing wrong. David, in fact, his fault was he did everything right. He just succeeded. He kept winning. He kept overcoming. 
And that was his fault. He earned the respect of Saul's men. He earned the respect of the townspeople. He earned the respect of the women. People started writing songs about him. He was elevated to a height that he, he, it was beyond him. He did nothing wrong. And all of this is inside of Saul's head. And as this is simmering in his head, we're told that something else happens. It actually pushes him to a higher degree of severity. We're told that in verse 10, that the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, which is an interesting way of describing his state of being. And we're told that he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand. And he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Verse 12, Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. What we see here, what we see is that Saul actually had become somewhat maniacal. And we could say it this way, that his thoughts overwhelmed him to such a degree. His, his inner man was beginning to unravel to such a degree he started to lose grip on rational thought. Now, they don't describe it this way, but we would almost assume it's some sort of a, almost a degenerative disease that was removing his ability to remain in reality. And this fear and this paranoia and this jealousy and insecurity that was overwhelming him, it ended up, he's sitting there and you could just almost hear it. And David, who we know is a poet and a singer and a musician, you know, one of the ways he would serve the king is because everyone knew he was bothered. He was disturbed. King Saul was disturbed. Something was wrong with him. But one of the things that soothed him was music. And so David would play the harp and he would sing melodies and he would seek to soothe his king. This was how he served him, one of the ways. And, and we could see this King Saul would be filled with this thought, filled with paranoia and fear and jealousy and recognizing this is my threat. This is my opponent. This is the one Samuel may have talked about. I will take care of this right now. And he grabs, he grabs the spear, the weapon of his choice, and he grabs it. And you could almost sense like David is watching. Wait, he's grabbing that spear. He's, he's gripping it. He's put over his shoulder, you know, it's like, and he lunges it. At him. He gets out of the way. It's stunned. Just, what? He gets out of the way. And, it, and we're told that in the midst of that, Saul, maybe, maybe he had another spear nearby. Or maybe he ends up going to where the spear is, gets out of his chair, goes to where the spear is, and grabs it, and he lunges it a second time. Second time, he it gets out of the way. David flees. He, he escapes. And this is where David's character starts to show up. He is loyal. He doesn't accuse the king, which, by the way, is a smart move. You don't do that. <laughs> but he also doesn't escape. He doesn't leave the, the palace. He doesn't try to get out of there. He doesn't try to figure out, why are you doing this? No. What does he do? He gives him the benefit of the doubt. Some say that Saul's state of mind was something that covered, because we know he was jealous. No one else did. We're told. The narrator tells us. David is sitting there, something's wrong. Saul is not, he's not altogether there. He's dangerous, certainly, but not malicious. Not malicious. He does not defect. He remains in the courts. And as this is happening, this is the irony about this. The irony is we're told in verse 12 that Saul then was afraid of David. Think about it. Saul threw the spear at David. If anyone's afraid, it shouldn't be Saul. He tried it twice. And what happens? He was afraid of David. It reminds me, those who attack, 
those who are maybe even characterized as bullies, oftentimes they say, are those who are most deeply afraid of everyone else around them. What we're being told here is to attack is not a sign of strength. It's actually a sign of weakness. What he doesn't do is repent. What he doesn't do is show any remorse. What he doesn't do is say, that was wrong. That was, I, need to, I need to change my ways. I need to go back. I need to go back to what Samuel said. I need to ask God for mercy, which, by the way, was available to him. And God's forgiveness was available to him. God's grace was available to him. It is why Samuel confronted him in the first place. But he chose not to do any of that. In fact, he chose to handle it his own way. And we're told in verse 13 that finally Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men. And David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. We would see this. We would hear this. And what we see here is that he, Saul ends up telling David, or he ends up moving David out of his presence. Some would say maybe because he wanted to remove the temptation of murder out of his presence. Others would say, no, actually, it would be because he concluded it can't be by my hand, so maybe by the hand of my enemies. I will make him in charge of some troops, expose him to battle and war, and the law of averages statistically say that the more you are exposed to battle and war, the higher the likelihood is that you will not return. And yet David just kept on succeeding over and over, and he kept winning. He couldn't help it. There's this period in his life where he just, everything he did, he came out on top. It's amazing. And if we're not careful, the way we would read this, we would say, it's because God was with him. And so obviously the conclusion is, if God is with you, you will win at everything you do. But we'd be mistaken. Because that's not what this is actually saying. See, this translation takes a little bit of liberty in it. In verse 14, where it says, um, David continued to succeed in everything he did for the Lord is with him. It's a little bit of a, of, it could be misguided. Because the original language says something a little closer to um, what the New King James Version said. And I asked him to put this up there. It says that David behaved wisely in all his ways. That David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. Now, word wisely actually comes from a Hebrew word that means two things. It's good for us to know. One, it means that he had prudence. And the other would mean that he, had, he was circumspect. And so as a contrast to who we know Saul is becoming, the man who is, who is disconnected, ruptured from God, who ends up becoming insecure and jealous and bitter, ends up stepping into a place, a mental state of murder. The contrast to that is actually... David is a man who is the man after God's own heart. What does that mean? He was sensitive to the things of the Lord. He didn't treat them casually. In fact, he, tre he treated them with high degrees of reverence. He never belittled what God may want to do or say to him. He always respected it. And it shows up. And he respects the officers that God puts in place. It's, it's amazing. But not only that. What, what does it also say to us? It says that he had prudence. What is that? The ability to have foresight, to foresee danger and move out of it. He had a skill. And though it was untapped, it now started to emerge. 
And in the battle, he was able, if you could hear it this way, he was able to read the landscape, read the room. And he would lead his troops to success because he had foresight. He saw how things were happening, dominoes. He saw everything collapsing in a certain way, and he's, he knew how to be victorious. He not only had that skill, but he also had something else. He, had, he was circumspect. What does that mean? It means he was careful with what he said. He restrained his words. Because what do we hear from David at this point in this passage? Nothing. Silence. And if, if Saul's words reveal the weakness of his character, David's silence reveals the strength of his soul. And what we see here is the contrast. He who was indulgent, self-indulgent, more concerned about himself, his own place, his own notoriety, actually that ended up becoming the unraveling of his character. And he who was privately disciplined in his own soul, in his own heart, in his own mind, ended up becoming, the discipline ended up building his character. This is the contrast we are given. These are the paths we are shown. David was wise. He behaved wisely. And the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And we're told that what happens is, what Saul's response is this. What is it? We're told that in verse 29, that Saul became even more afraid of him. And he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. And we're going to explore this. Saul ends up hunting David down like one would hunt an animal. He uses all his resources, his position in his military, at one point utilizing 3,000 men to hunt one. Such was the degree of Saul's feeling of being threatened. And every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, we're told in verse 30, David was more successful against them. We could read it. He was wise. He was skillful. And then, then all the rest of Saul's officers, so David's name became very famous. This is, this is a moment in, in David's life where we could say, well, it is easy to be David here. Everything you do succeeds. But what we don't know is that actually this is the climb, much like perhaps like a roller coaster. With the initial ascent, it doesn't mean everything ahead is going to be great. It means it's about to drop. And that is exactly what happens to David. And yet, this consistency he develops here keeps him in the valley of depression. Lord willing, we'll explore it. Because this is the highest moment right before the bottom falls out. This is the contrast. David, the man who's sensitive to God, saw the man who belittled, treated casually, felt entitled, felt maybe even above the law, now ended up stepping into a different path, the decline of one, the ascent of the other. And the irony, the rich irony, is that the most powerful man in the land, the man who had position, power, and resource, was actually the most insecure. And the man who was most vulnerable because the most powerful hunted him down was a man who had no real position above the king, no real notoriety. It was just now beginning. It was actually the man who we would say is the most exposed. His life is going to be short-lived if we were to be ones who would assume how this is going. 
is actually the man who is most secure in the palm of God's hand. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. That in itself is worthy of our consideration and reflection, but I believe there is something else here for us that might reveal something of who we are, how God may want to interact with us in this. Firstly, I just put this up there, is that praise exposes and tests our hearts. What we see here is that praise exposes and tests our hearts. How, how does it do that? Well, in Saul's case, his heart was exposed. The very minute someone else received the praise that he thought he deserved, his pride was wounded. He had a degree of being entitled. He felt entitled to that. Not David. David doesn't deserve it. I've been the king. I've been the one. I'm the first king. I'm the one who created this monarch. I should be receiving it. I don't know if you've ever been there, but God almost exposes Saul's heart to himself. Why? Because in God's love and his tender mercy, he never exposes us simply to shame us, ever. He always does it to address what is exposed. And in this case, it would have been something, we would start to understand the principle, listen, in God's economy, someone else's gain does not mean our loss. And whenever we might feel the sting of someone else's being received praise or, or success or someone else's advancing in a way we would rather advance and we're unable to celebrate, we are not able to step into that for others. Well, God may actually be revealing that to us because he longs to clean it, to heal it, to address it, to strengthen the weakness that has been shown. It doesn't just expose us. It also tests us. His praise has an ability to do something to us, doesn't it? it? It almost is like a wind that can come beneath our feet. And if we're not careful, if we're the ones receiving it, it is able to lift our feet off the ground and elevate our own sense of self-importance. And if we're not careful, we can start to receive it and, and adapt it and think, yes. And we no longer are in the realm of accuracy in terms of how we think about ourselves. And it's curious. This is interesting. There's a proverb Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs 27. I asked him to put this up there. It says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. What is that saying? That the same way a furnace refines and purifies gold and is able to bring up the unworthy qualities that lie within the metals so that they can be removed and, rem and, and allow pure gold to remain in the same way when we receive praise, what does it do? It elevates to the surface our motivations. It elevates to the surface the different things that are actually happening inside of us. What drives us? And this is important because it is there that God may want to say, okay, that's great. Now let's remove the unworthy things and let's keep because praise is in itself not bad. It's actually great. And if we're in a season where we might receive it, let's be grateful for it. That is awesome. But it has the capacity to do something else. Why? Because in a culture like the one we live in, we live in a culture that actually elevates the praise of our peers and the praise of man and women to us. It elevates it to a degree that says that in itself is success. That is the water we swim in. 
And to be famous and popular is in itself a worthy goal. And yet the scriptures were to be, to be appreciated, to be, to be affirmed by those around us. It's not, un, it's not seen as something of a negative motivation. But the scriptures call us to something different. The scriptures say, okay, okay, that's not bad in itself, but the scriptures actually say that what we should strive for is the approval and praise of God in our lives. It is countercultural. It is like swimming upstream. But that is what David had. That is what Saul did not have. David was consumed with what God said was good and right. He, he was filled with a desire to please the one who made him. And Saul actually ruptured that. And in rupturing that, he lived off of the praise of those around him. And when he didn't have it, boy, was he exposed. And he could have gone back, but he chose not to. See, do you see the difference? David, David was already satisfied with what God said is worthy of pursuit. He was approved. He was loved. If you hear it this way, David knew God, the Lord, was with him. And because of that, the praise of the women didn't elevate him beyond what is accurate. He was able to remain sober, wise, circumspect, feet on the ground. Secondly, it tells us something else. It tells us that if, if praise exposes and tests our hearts, well, jealousy is a symptom of our need to affirm our connection with God and his plan for us. This is, this is, this is the other side. See, jealousy in itself, jealousy is a leaf on the tree, not the root of it. In itself, if we ever feel this thing of it, if we ever sense something of a something inside of us that is not pleased, actually bothered by what others are getting and we're not getting, and we are not in a place of high security, it is actually jealousy is meant to be an alarm. It's like a light that flashes on the dashboard, meant to tell us, oh, oh, oh okay, this is what's happening. This is because we have lost our connection with the one who made us. And it is there that we are meant to run back. And if we have never affirmed that connection, can we just say, because of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection and his promise of new life, he invites anyone who would seek, seek him out to just call on his name. It was available to Saul. It is available to any of us. But jealousy in itself, what does it speak of? It speaks of a need, doesn't it? A need to what? To be affirmed, to be loved, to be appreciated. Nothing of that is wrong. It's just that what happens is jealousy appears when we seek to find it in another place outside of our connection with God. When we run to Him and we reaffirm or affirm for the first time, we get to experience the reality that the one who created us loves us far more than we can ever comprehend, and that our, our performance, our achievements, what our resources say about us, what people say about us, pales in comparison to what the Lord says about you and I. And when we start to discover his words for us, the care, the details by which he concerns themselves in our lives, we start to discover that we are able to join in David's song. Far too wonderful are your thoughts for me, O God. How wonderful you are. What is man that you are mindful of him? 
how satisfied we become in him. See, you see it. You see it. The longing we have, the need we have is truly only met in the connection we were meant to have with the one who made us. Saul needed it, didn't go for it. David had it. David had a connection with God that you and I are able to take fully advantage of. Do you see it? This is, this, is, this is what we get to discover, to affirm and reaffirm, maybe for the first time or once again, sometimes too often to admit, this is what we get to do. We get to step into back, run back into a place of acceptance with God, back into a place of satisfaction with Him. Because ultimately what this shows us is that living wisely, Living wisely sets us on the path that leads to ultimate peace and security. This is extremely important. Do you remember in verse 14, what was it that David, David behaved wisely. He behaved wisely and the Lord was with him. And wisdom <clears throat> is something that Jesus took care to define. At the end of his, probably some say, his best sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, I asked him to put this up there. They said, he says this, he says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. That's wisdom. Like a person, they become like a person who builds a house on solid rock and though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. What is he saying? He's saying if you want real security, if you want like a wall around your life that is thicker than any fortress you have ever seen, do what I say. Live wisely in my eyes and we will discover it. This, this actually hits home for me. Not to say nothing else does, but this reminds me of the fact that there was this moment in my life in which I remember being sat down and being told of what was up ahead, what was going to be required of me, what I was being asked to step into. And I remember having this sit down to this conversation and uh, I started to get a sense of what was going to be required of me. And as I was going home, <clears throat> all I could think about was my weaknesses. And all I could think about was my lack. And all I could think about was my inability to do what was being asked of me. And I remember going home, getting home, sitting down, and inside of my own mind, all my thoughts started being fueled by fear. And they started, started to unravel in a place of thinking about the worst possible conclusion to this. And the way this is all going to end, and this is going to be bad, not just for me, but the people involved. This is all going to be bad, and I'm just sitting there. I don't know if you've ever been there. Where fear grips... And all you see is the worst. And I remember just sitting there. And this is just kind of doing a number on me. And as I'm sitting there wrestling with this, no one else was home. My wife hadn't arrived from work yet. And she ends up stepping into the house. She opens the door and it's to the left of our couch. And I'm just sitting there and I'm just kind of contemplating and thinking about this and feeling pretty anxious and afraid. And she steps in and she says, hey, honey. I said, hey, welcome home. She looks at me and she takes one look and she comments about something. And I said, uh, what do you mean by that? She says, uh, you know, she commented about how I look. Maybe it was just, I, it, it lo I looked bothered perhaps. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I just wanted to know, I was curious, what did you mean by that? And she says, oh, uh, nothing, nothing, nothing. I, I'm, nothing, never mind, never mind. You know, it's no big deal, no big deal. I said, no, 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 no you can't. You, what did you, why did you say it? And she says, well, you know what? I take it back. 
I take it back. I don't want it. Forget I said it. I said, no, 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 you can't take it back. You said it. Why did you say it? What are you seeing? What are you seeing? Are you seeing something inside of me? Are you thinking that something is going to go wrong? What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? And I just start going at her. She just sits there and, I, and it, I'm just filled with anxiety. And I don't know if you've ever been there. Where the minute you feel a little bit insecure, isn't it amazing how the smallest, smallest critique becomes this enormous thing. It's almost like the last straw on the camel's back. And the castle, the sand castle, starts to just disintegrate. And as I'm sitting there, my wife looks at me and she says, you know what? Probably recognizing I was about to become undone a little bit. She says, I'm going to go into the next room. And why don't you go ahead and tell me when it's safe to re-engage? She just left me there riled up. I remember sitting on my couch just filled with anxiety, depositing what she said as one more piece of evidence that what I was thinking was right. <laughs> I just, this is just the way I processed. I got my laptop, I opened up a doc, and I just started unloading what was inside of me. And all of my fears and all my worries and all of my anxiety and everything I thought was wrong and everything I thought was going to go wrong and everything, every reason why I wasn't sufficient, why I wasn't able, why I wasn't capable, all of my weaknesses, everything just starts flooding onto this. I just, it was somewhat cathartic, but not helpful because this is all I saw in front of me. And as I'm doing this, I'm just unloading everything inside of me. I just sense something inside of me ask, will you invite me in? Will you invite me in? And I just, God, I need help. I'm overwhelmed. I don't, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I have it in me. I want to, but I need your help. Will you just come, please? Help me. I can't explain it really, but in that moment, in my living room, it was almost as if the Lord just came and hugged me. I'm with you. I'm right here. I'm right here. Nothing changed in my situation. The circumstance didn't change. What I was being asked to step into, I had to step into it. I stepped into it. All the reasons I was afraid, they didn't go away. The things that I was concerned about, they didn't disappear. They weren't solved. Nothing changed outside of me. Because that is not really what God promises. What he promises is that he's able to breathe strength within us. What he promises is peace that is like a fortress. And that if we long for security, if we long for assurance, if we long for a sense of strength, we do not possess. It is only found in the grip of his it is only there that we are able to discover that his promise to us is more real than anything we think around us needs to be solved. That we might be in the midst of a storm. The waves might come, Jesus said. The wind will howl. Things will shake. And yet the house will not fall. Because his ability to strengthen our inward being is more powerful than we can imagine. It's more able of sustaining and strengthening. It is the reason, it is the reason 
that he who was vulnerable, he who was exposed, he who was being attacked was actually more secure than anyone else. Why? God was with him. May that be the case for you and I. Maybe our circumstances won't change. Maybe they will. Maybe we ourselves are in a situation we might be overwhelmed by. Can we hear this? That the fastest way to peace and security is found by reconnecting, reaffirming with him, building our lives on what he says is right and true, taking his word much more seriously than anything else around us, seeking out his approval and his praise. And when we do that, our house is built on bedrock. And we will be able to sustain the highs and lows life will bring our way. That is his promise. May that be our reality. May that be what we step into. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving. The band's going to come up and share in a closing song meant to be somewhat of a prayer of ours. A declaration of sorts. But I would just like to pray over this word we shared. Ask for his blessing over it. We'll be able to enjoy this together. God, I thank you. Thank you that in a way we are shown two paths. One seeks to find satisfaction, security elsewhere. The other has it in you. And I thank you, God, that in our own lives we may have weaknesses, we may have vulnerabilities, we may have propensities, we may struggle with the very things Saul struggled with. And yet, in your mercy and in your grace, you call us to a place of coming back to you, of reaffirming our relationship with you, of finding out that you cover our weaknesses, you cover our inadequacies, you make up for what we cannot provide, and you are able to give us the security nothing else in our lives is capable of doing. You're able to speak peace that sustains and guards. I pray that you do that with us. I ask God that you help us strive to please you, to receive the grace you give us through your son, Jesus, and to build a life on your word that is such a strong fortress, the heaviest storms cannot topple. We pray for your blessing over our week, over this word we've shared. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.